Let's start. Let's start. Any any prayer requests? Fred, it's the it's the second week when I, we've not seen um, Frances. Is she okay? She's still she's still fighting her cold, so she's here but off camera. <laughs> well, I hope I hope she <laughs> come back in here, you big wimp. <laughs> if you can put a hand out there, you can put a toe and you can put shoulders and a head. She's trying not to cough and sneeze in front of everybody. <laughs> I yeah, think, Bob wants faces. I, I think we're, we're the, the computer is acting like a mask here, so I think we're protected from each other. But Any prayer requests tonight? Yes, actually, a man named Mark Ruffin. Says, the man I knew back in Oklahoma passed away from COVID after about a two-month battle with a respirator. God. How old was he, Mark? I want to say he was late 50s, early 60s. I don't know. He's got young kids, um, had kids later in life. They grew up with my kids a little bit. They were a couple years younger than my kids. Um, but uh, good guy. Um, but... I guess they just didn't catch it in time. Yeah, God. I'm sorry to hear that. I'm sorry um, to hear that. I, I have a prayer request for a woman who is pretty much of a shut-in. Um, so during all this mess with uh, her pipes froze, and she's in an apartment and has caregivers, but nobody was around, and she fell and hurt her knee. So um, her name is Phyllis Water. Mark, what was your friend's name again? His name is Mark Ruffin. Mark. Um, okay, let's start. Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Don't forget Nikki. Nikki, yeah. Um, thank you, Lord, again, for the gift of our life from you and the gift of yourself this morning at Mass um, for your presence through the day. How good you are. Um, you call us to a cross. Hard thing. Um, the play that we're reading is all about giving up everything, learning to put things away, to find out who we are. And um, in some ways it's an echo of your call to all of us. Um, I ask for a special grace in the work that we're doing to deepen our understanding, to strengthen our wills, um, to give ourselves to you what you ask, to take obedience seriously, um, to trust. Um, these things are so at odds with so much of what the world um, offers us, asks of us. But do this, please, for all of us. Um, strengthen us. Um, lots of us are getting close to an end. Mark's too young, you wouldn't know. But, but so many of us... King Lear may do me in. <laughs> well, it, it would be a good doing in, Mark. Anyway, um, let your blessing be upon all of us. Um, um, 
help to deepen our understanding and um, um, help us to carry this knowledge that we take from these people to our hearts um, so that we're, we find a strength to love the way that you've been asked. We've been asked um, by you. We ask for a special blessing on Mark's friend. Mark, um, receive him into your kingdom. He's young. Young. It's a reminder how we can't take things for granted. The COVID, the freeze we just went through, they're all reminders. They're like severe mercies, hard mercies, um, to wake up, to not take life for granted. Um, we're all here together. We've been together for a while. One of us could not be here the next week. So let us make the good. Let, let help all of us not to waste this Lent. Help us to take it seriously. Um, and um, receive him into your kingdom. Forgive his sins. Um, let our prayers help him. Um, I'm assuming if any of us would be in that situation and we found out what was happening here on earth, we'd be humbled to know people that we don't even know are praying for us. Um, it's, it's something we should always carry with us in our church. Lent's a time when the whole church carries everybody else. What a humbling blessing to know that others all over the world are saying prayers for us. So let that be so for him. And for his family. And his family and um, right now for Mark that he carries his friend with him. I mean all that he carries, the memories of childhood, kids growing up together. Um, to lose um, a friend when he was too young to expect that to happen. And for um, Phyllis, um, watch over her in her solitude. Um, it, the freeze was an awful time. There were lots of seniors, lots of them alone, um, who were without care. So watch over her, help her recover from her injury. I ask a special blessing on Tracy um, for her health. Um, Nikki has been gone for a while. She just underwent surgery, so bless her in her recovery. Um, and we ask um, for a blessing on all those we hold in our hearts. Um, and I'm assuming some of us are thinking about them then, now while we pray, even if we've not mentioned their names. So um, strengthen all of us um, in spirit in those burdens we carry in our hearts. Um, we are glad to be together tonight to go over this amazing play. Um, help us to get to its better wisdoms and live them. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, let's do Ash Wednesday. <clears throat> what I'm going to do through Lent... I think there's six sections. I can't remember. I counted them now. I've forgotten how many there are. What I'd like to do is take each sec one section each week, and, and until we get through it, I, I, may, I may double up a section if I find we're not going to get through it in Lent, but I may not. Um, I, I don't want to force it. Um, but that's what we'll do. My suggestion is you read it, all of you read it, the whole thing, because you know that when you have a hole in your mind when you look at a part it always makes more sense of the whole so if you've read it 
the, the parts will make more sense as we go through it. It's not an easy poem to understand. If any of you have already tried to read it, you know that. <clears throat> what I'm going to do is just read it and then ask a question and um, ask all of you, not tonight to answer it, but to think about the question over the week so that when we start next week, when we pick up Ash Wednesday again, I'd like to ask you how you answered it. It's going to be a quiz. It's going to be a quiz for everybody. And just so you know, I'm going to grade you on it. I'm going to get the church records and find out where you are and send a grade to you. Um. <laughs> anyway, I'll ask the question, and, and Barbara's shaking her head. She does not want a quiz, I can tell. <laughs> Never. My memory is like a sieve. No, no quizzes. Anyway, I will, I will ask, because I think it will help um, get you into it. We've, we've done some T.S. Eliot before. Um, you remember, he? I, I think he's probably the greatest poet of the 20th century. He, Frost, Robert Frost, Wallace Stevens, and William but Butler Yeats were the most important poets, the greatest poets of the 20th century. And I think in lots of ways Eliot stands out from that group um, because of the work he did in criticism and because of the position he took as a, as a man of letters who was a Christian. Ash Wednesday is the poem that marks his conversion. He wrote this sometime around his conversion. People, intellectuals, loved Eliot because he was obscure and difficult. But after his conversion, lots of them were disenchanted, turned away from them. They, they, for lots of reasons, I don't want to go into them all here. But, but this is a turning point poem, okay? Um... Let me leave it just at that. I'm going to read the first section, and I'm going to ask a question um, without expecting anybody to answer. But I, I really would like to... I, I'm very, very serious about this. I really would like you guys to look at this first section this next week while we're away and see if you can answer my question and, and apply your answer to each one of the stanzas. Okay? Just, I'd really love to hear your... Really, truly... I'm asking this very seriously. If you would write them down or um, be ready to just say what they are when we meet next Monday, because um, I'm genuinely eager to hear what you'd say. T.S. Eliot's Ash Wednesday. So this marks the beginning of Lent, okay, and a turn, a penitential period, okay, that he's entering into. Because I do not hope to turn again, because I do not hope because I do not hope to turn, desiring this man's gift and that man's scope. I no longer strive to strive towards such things. Why should the aged eagle stretch its wings? Why should I mourn the vanished power of the usual rain? Because I do not hope to know again the infirm glory of the positive hour. Because I do not think. Because I know I shall not know the one veritable transitory power, because I cannot drink there where trees flower and springs flow, for there is nothing again. No, no, that's okay. Um, because I know that time is always time and place is always an only place, and what is actual is actual only for one time and only for one place. 
I rejoice that things are not as they are and I renounce the blessed face and renounce the voice because I cannot hope to turn again. Consequently, I rejoice having to construct something upon which to rejoice and pray to God to have mercy upon us and pray that I may forget these matters that with myself I too much discuss, too much explain, because I do not hope to turn again. Let these words answer for what is done, not to be done again. May the judgment not be too heavy upon us, because these wings are no longer wings to fly, but merely vans to beat the air, the air which is now thoroughly small and dry, smaller and drier, and the will teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to sit still. Pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Pray for us now and at the hour of our death. Next section, if you've read it, you know it begins. Lady three white leopards sat under a juniper tree in the cool of the day, having fed to satiety. On my legs, my heart, my liver, and that which had been contained in the hollow round of my skull. And God said, shall these bones live? And then it goes on. My question here at the outset is, um, what are the independent clauses, the starters of these sentences? Eliot gives us a series of dependent clauses, right? A dependent clause is contingent on an independent one. It rests on it. It relates to it. It only has existence in relation to that thing. But Eliot starts all these sentence or these stanzas with dependent clauses, because I do not hope to turn again, because I do not hope to know again, because I know that time is always time and place is always an only place. Um, and pray to God have mercy upon us, because these wings are no longer wings to fly, but merely vans to beat the air. What are the independent clauses for each of those stanzas and why the omission? Why did he leave them out? Lots of people who read this poem, lots of people love this poem and never ask the question. <laughs> and yet the poem demands we answer it. There, here's the apophatic, by the way, here's the apophatic again. There's something missing. We know what it is by what's present but what's present makes us aware of what's not there. So it's through something present to us that we become aware of something not present. Right? So my question is, what are, um, what are those independent clauses for each of those stanzas, and why did he leave them out? Why is it important for the form of the poem? I'm sorry Karen's not here. I would really have fun with her. She went nuts with Faulkner because he never used punctuation. <laughs> what do you mean they're left out? Well, careful what you say. I am here. Who's <laughs> she is here? Sorry, who, who's that? That's Karen. Oh, oh, oh God, oh! <laughs> I'm not going to be careful anyway with you here or not. You used to go nuts with Faulkner because he wouldn't use punctuation, and here's Elliot playing with all these things grammatically. Um, Karen, where come for, show yourself. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm eating. That's why. I, <laughs> um. Anyway, well, here. So, um. Mm, 
I flunked the test because I didn't study. Um, I was pressed for class because I was trying to get ready for class. Um, I missed the bus because I overslept. You know, or, or I'm taking a class because I want to learn. Right? Those are all, I think what they call, it's been so long, complex sentences. They consist of an independent clause followed by a dependent clause. Because since, you know, all, the, all those dependent clauses, right? They have those adverbial conjunctions. God, it's been a long time since I've taught grammar. I'm surprised that I even remember those things. I think they're um, adverbial conjunctions, although, because, since. Somebody help me out here. I think, I think that's right. Anyway, is that, is that clear? So Elliot begins with half a statement, and it's the dependent half. Because I do not hope to turn again, because I do not hope, because I do not hope to turn, because I do not hope to know again, because I know that time is always time, and place is always an only place. You know, every stanza um, focuses around a condition, a contingent condition. What's left out? What's the statement? Provide the statement. So what I'm asking of you guys is take those things and provide, so provide a a deep, an independent clause for each one of those stanzas. Take each stanza separately and provide the missing clause. I'm Grant? a sinner. Sorry? I'm no, sinner. Not, not now. I don't want, I want you to think about it. Francis, that means you too, even though you're not showing. Is that clear? And, and the question is, why, 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 why did Eliot omit those independent clauses? What does that do for the poem? There's a, an apophatic element. There's something missing. Why did he do that? There's a real power in what he does, but it, it asks something here. So, so when we start next week, I'll, I'll, we'll pick up with Ask Wednesday again. I'll read the second section, but I'd like to begin just with that question, just to see what you guys come up with. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. Lear. Do you want this? Do you have it? Yeah. Gosh. That's oh, not it. Holy cow. Oh, hold on, you guys. Sorry. Um, last week, um, I, I continued with some of the background, a few background observations that I that I think are important to keep in mind when we when we think about King Lear, um, just um, a quick review of some of those points um, before we look at the text. Um, remember last week, I, um, if, if we expand the background that I introduced several weeks ago, that Shakespeare's writing after the Copernican Revolution, and he's writing after 
the Reformation. So he's experienced things that are going to change the world in a way that, say, Dante and Chaucer didn't. Uh, the Copernican Revolution hadn't happened for either of those poets um, or the Reformation. But I suggested last week that Shakespeare was aware of the implications of those changes and a, a shift in paradigms from um, a traditional way of looking at things to a, um, a, a, an entirely different way. Um, we can describe the shift uh, as one from a, um, a theocentric, God-centered universe, a Christian Middle Ages, to an anthropocentric, a man-centered, that man is at the center of things now. Science is the knowledge informing him. And the, the change in the way people use their minds, their intellects. The Christian Middle Ages um, were, were in lots of ways unreflective. Um, education was not as important then as it is now, and the people who were Christians um, lived their faith in an unreflecting way. They were born that way, they grew up that way, they didn't think about it. The, the world was basically Christian to the Western world. But after the Copernican Revolution and the Reformation, people become very skeptical, extremely skeptical. They're questioning everything, authority, how we know what we know. And I've suggested that um, it's no accident that Shakespeare writes then that often the greatest literature is written at a time of fundamental change in the civilization, when an old way of doing things is being lost, because it forces people to question how and why they live. And it seems to me one of the things that Shakespeare shows in his play is um, what, what we can call an uprooting of the intellect. We saw that in Merchant of Venice. Um, remember, Portia had to come from Belmont in order to save Venice because the people who were products of Venice would not have been able to use their reason the way she did. People in Venice were, um, were given to success, um, a legalistic way of reading, too Christian, too Jewish. Those are the contrasts in the play. It's a quality we find in lots of his plays, and we do here. Um, there are lots of people who use reason in this play without the help of faith. And there are some people who use it aware of the gods of some divine order, even if, even if you can't call it Christian. Um, but it's a fundamental motif of the play, okay? Um, another way we can put this is if you look at, certainly Chaucer, who's an English poet, if you look at his treatment of the pilgrimage in, in Canterbury Tales, you see a relatively innocent Christian community, all of the people on their way to the Shrine of St. Thomas. There's a goodness and a joy. There's some of the tales talk about evil. But there's a, you can't read Chaucer, I, I really strongly believe, without coming out of it aware of how strong his faith is. Some of the tales deal with adultery. Nobody's offended by it. It's a fact of life and people did it. Um, Chaucer brings a great charity, a great faith to his treatment of everything. When we get to Shakespeare, that innocence is gone. You almost cannot read a play without feeling that you're in the middle of castle intrigues. We're, we're in a Machiavellian world. Machiavelli is written, it's, it's pretty certain that Shakespeare read Machiavelli, that the ends justify the mean, people can use their powers of reason to justify getting whatever they want. 
That's our world. It's full of intrigues, betrayals, killings, plottings. Um, it's reason unhinged. Hamlet, Lear, you can go where you will. Okay. So we're in a different world. We're on the verge of the modern world and in some ways it points to us. Human beings are encouraged to use reason without any reference to traditional values. Marriage, children, things like that. Religion. Um, we've talked about the importance of laws and the theme of justice in all the plays. Um, it was a serious question in our last discussion. I'd, I'd like to shorten it tonight if I can. Shakespeare would have known that there were a couple of major lines of thinking up to his time. One was Platonic, one was Aristotelian. Plato looked at laws as necessary because he saw that there was an inherent um, um, evil in man, that man, um, that man was fallen. And it was only, remember in the caving, it was only by turning away from the world and asking questions that man could escape the cave and come out of it. Um, but it meant using reason in a way that was different from the way the world used reason. Socrates was always in battle with the sophists. Remember their position was um, reason is that power to make whatever you want so. To make good good, bad good, whenever you want, so long as it benefited you. They were the great opponents of Socrates. He said that reason was a gift given to man to discover the truth and he couldn't get to the truth without asking questions. So the whole Socratic enterprise rests on the assumption that philosophy involves a conflict. That, that the true philosopher is always going to be engaging in battle because people always and everywhere misuse reason. Okay. Um, it seems to me one of the one of the one of the conclusions that we come to from Lear, particularly if we look at Edmund, you know, in that in that passage that we read last week about nature, his goddess, um, he was natural, so was Edgar, but Edgar was born under the law, Edmund was not, so Edmund grew up being called a bastard, base, corrupt. Um, Edgar was not. So by no act of his own, Ed, Edgar grew up in a world that was oppressive. And it's one of the things that we assume from the way Shakespeare presents him that, that encourages him, gives him a leave to do what he does. <clears throat> so it seems to me one of, the, one of the conclusions we bring away from Lear is that law is necessary, but it's not sufficient. It's necessary to curb men's appetites. But in itself, it's not sufficient because man's inclination to sin is too great. So while laws are important and while there is a law in nature, nature has a law, it's tenuous, it's obscure, by itself it seems not enough. So we get these constant allusions to justice or order or nature as if there are laws in nature. Remember, we talk, we've talked about that. It was there in Boethius, it was there in C.S. Lewis, when he talked about the Tao, we've talked about it in the Old Testament. God's way. There is a way to God's creation. The just man is the man who conforms to that way, who makes himself just. Justice doesn't mean just being obedient to the law. 
it means conforming to God's way because sometimes laws are not good. So one of the questions we asked in the last couple of weeks, what happens when people make bad laws? What do you do with them? Um, another theme was serving, the theme of obedience, um, particularly to lords. Lear's a king. Even if he does a stupid thing, there are some people who take obedience to Lear very seriously. Kent does. Kent never abandons him. He remains faithful through the whole thing. Edgar remains faithful in his mind to his father, um, even, even, even though his father thinks of him as a, as a um, patricide, a murder of potential yeah, betrayer. The theme of obedience and serving, the number of people who serve, think about them all in the play just for a second. Cordelia comes back to serve her father. Kent never stops serving. Edgar serves his father late in the play. Albany remains troubled. He feels constantly that Lear's daughters did not do him a justice. So even though he has to defend England against the what he thinks is a French invasion, he supports the king. Um, he would have let Lear go, you know, after the capture. Um, the fool. Absolutely obedient, serving. <clears throat> the number of plottings and intrigues that take place, the instances of, of defiance. Edward seems to be virtuous when he's not. Everything he does is in defiance of nature, of the goodness of nature, and in defiance of Lear. It's a work because evils present in the world, um, it requires masks, disguises, in order to protect anybody to protect himself from such a situation, he has to take on a persona, a disguise. <coughs> Think about how true that would have been in Shakespeare's time, under the Tudor regime. If anybody declared himself a Catholic, he would be persecuted. He'd be arrested or killed. That's <coughs> one of the questions I've asked. What were the motives for Shakespeare's plays? Could he come directly out and espouse a Catholic position without risking his life? He could not have. He would have been put in a tower and his, and his career as an artist would have been over. So that in a, in a situation in which evil has the support of law or disguises, people are forced into approaching reality through indirections, going around things, taking on disguises, going at them indirectly. Look at our culture today. I mean, it's hateful on both sides. Um, you put this another way. Cornwall would have taken no thought about putting on a disguise. He would have simply used his power to do what he wanted to do. Lear did that until he was forced out into the heath. And then he has to change in lots of ways. Language itself, if we look at the language, it is, it, there are instances of, of just pure poetry, amazing poetry. Um, some of the speeches are put to rhyme. One of Kent's speeches, important speeches, is put to rhyme. Shakespeare gives a dignity to the lines that are spoken, and he also gives a, a depth and an amplitude 
to a person's consciousness, what's, what he's carrying within him, um, that only the poet can get to, what he does with language. The last question that I left everybody with last night, or last week, was um, how do we characterize the community that gets formed on the heath? People are forced into exile. Prophets have been forced into exile. What happens to that community on the heath? Can we characterize it? Why is it important for the play? Because a lot goes on there. Um, we haven't done enough Shakespeare to, to probably warrant this, but, but I'll say it anyway. If you've, if you've read a lot of Shakespeare, you know that typically Shakespeare deals in two worlds, almost always in his plays. There's what's called the green world, the forest, or something like the heath. There's an island world in, in the Tempest. It's on Prospero's Island. <coughs> Things happen there before they go back to the continent. So many of the comedies involving women who are forced into exile because of, I don't know what to call it, the, the harsh injustices of the social world, the political world. And it's in that green world that amazing transformations take place. We did Midsummer Night's Dream. Didn't we do? I'm sure we did that. We did that together. Remember, the lovers have to f flee into the forest because if they don't, Hermia is going to. Hermia is going to die. It's only in the forest that something magical happens that it makes it possible for them to go back to Athens, the city. In Merchant of Venice, same thing. What's going to happen in the city is going to result in the death of Antonio if somebody doesn't come in to rescue him. Nobody from Venice can do that. Portia has to come from Belmont. It's another world. And after the trial, they all return to Belmont. What is this other world? What's as important in Shakespeare? In Lear, it's the Heath. And this strange community forms there. Why? What's he showing us in that community? That was the last um, question that I left everybody with. Um... So, just a couple of questions tonight before we start, or a couple of um, a couple more observations um, to to make that relate to these. Um, I went online. I think I sent it to you. I don't know if you all got it. I I copied the the uh, summary remarks of Sparknotes. I was just interested to see what they would have to say about the play. And if you read them, you know that um, whoever, I thought they were really good. I mean, they gave a good summary of the play, but I, I thought some of the reflections they ended up with missed something. But, but their summary conclusions were that Lear was basically a nihilistic play. It was all about despair and death um, um, there was no justice in what happened at the end. That's a typical modern response to most great literature. If you read critics reading Lear, or, uh, the Iliad, they're going to say of Homer's Iliad, it's, it's God's playing with men. It's a, quote from, it's a quote from Shakespeare, like God's playing with flies, swat, or humans swatting flies. The, the gods play with human beings. That The Iliad is essentially nihilistic that Lear is about the meaninglessness of life. There's no justice, there's no law, everybody dies, everybody important, nobody gets justice, 
Um, sorry. There are two works that have been important for everything that we've read. We've read one of them. We haven't read the other. The other one. One is Plato's Republic. And I don't. We won't. I. I don't think we're going to do it together. But. Um, it's actually an extraordinary work, and it's a drama. It's not an exposition. It's a it's a conflict between Socrates and these men. So it reads like a play. But you know that the, we've gone over this. The fundamental thesis of Plato is that there are two positions of justice. Justice is either man-made. It's the it's what the stronger make because they have power over the weaker. So it's whatever the stronger choose to make just real. So it protects selfish interests. It, it's made in the interest of man. It's man-made. It's conventional. It's what's called conventional. And the whole point of, of Plato's Republic is to defeat that view, is to answer it. What, what Socrates goes on to show is that there's a nature to the soul. That's the whole force of his argument, that the soul has a nature. And because it has a nature, Political regimes should be in accord with that nature. If they're not, they're oppressive. If political regimes set up a structure that's out of tune with the human soul, it's going to cause problems. I think the problems we've got politically in our country today are worse than they were a hundred years ago. I mean, people can debate this, but because it's we've lost sense of, or we seem to have lost a sense of what our democracy is, what it really means. Plato was making the argument. He, he knew the five regimes, monarchy, aristocracy, oligarchy, democracy, tyranny. Those are the five possible forms of regimes. And he said that democracy, or what he called a mixed regime, was the greatest because it allowed the most freedom. With the most freedom, philosophers could emerge. People had enough freedom for those who loved to do so would study would become philosophic. It was even preferable to a monarchy because it's so rare to get a good king. That was his understanding of politics, but the whole thrust of it was the soul has a nature. Justice means being in accord with reality and the nature of the human soul. That's what justice is. Okay? So that, that's very much on Shakespeare's mind. Um, Socrates was executed. There was no question in Plato's mind when he wrote about that execution that that was unjust. But he could only make it unjust because he knew the nature of the soul. And Socrates' response to it, when all of his friends came to save him, he said, no, I'm not going to, I can't run away. This is the state in which I was raised. I owe my life to the state. I have to obey it even if it means it takes my life. So it's one of the early instances of a man being accused of a crime that he did not commit and being executed for it. Same thing happened to Christ. The same thing happened to Boethius. And the same thing happened to Thomas More. I mean, just to carry it forward. Every one of those men, every one was virtuous, good. And every one of them was accused of doing wrong that he didn't do. And every one of them was falsely um, executed, accused and executed. So behind Shakespeare was the Republic, 
that the soul has a nature, there's a nature, there's a law to nature, and um, one of the struggles man has is to learn about that nature so that he can become virtuous, so he can become who he was given to be according to his nature. That's absolutely compatible with the Old Testament and New Testament. The second book that lots of modern critics would not have read is Boethius' Consolation, and we have. And you know there that the fundamental question is, why does God um, allow evil men to succeed and virtuous men to suffer? The whole thrust, the whole import of that book was to answer that question. Boethius was accused of doing something he didn't do, and he would die. The play begins with his whining, and it ends with his seeing the rightness of that and his willingness to die. So it seems to me that the people who criticize Lear uh, as being a story um, um, in which Shakespeare affirms no justice, there's no justice in anything that happens, simply do not understand something, or they don't understand the way in which Shakespeare situates himself in the tradition that we've been looking at. Remember, Boethius says, um, there is no bad fortune. All fortune is good because God is a good God bringing um, goodness out of things. It all depends on how we see those things, whether at, we're at the center of a circle, close to God, or at the periphery where we're swirling and looking at things the way humans tend to look at them. So one of the questions of Lear is, is there something going on at the heath that takes us to that still point and provides us with a perspective for looking at the rest of the world that the rest of the world does not have? Um, <coughs> these are all works of philosophy. The interesting thing is that all of them are in a tune with Christ. Because Christ himself said, pick up your cross unless you die to yourself, unless you put away the world, unless you repent, um, unless you do these things, you will have no life with me. So at the time Shakespeare was writing, his audience was already beca uh, becoming secularized. It, would, it was an audience that um, largely educated aristocrats um, who were questioning their faith and in some ways weren't practicing it, even if they were Christian. So he wrote this, he wrote this play, King Lear. Um, two of the, you know, the two of the major questions that I've asked, I, I don't think we'll get to them tonight. Next, next week is, I plan to finish Lear. I, I don't think we're going to get through it tonight. But two of the questions are, is this a Christian play or not? Are the modern critics right? Is this a play affirming a lack of justice in the world, that there is no order, there is no justice, there's no law to nature? That's the first question. And the second is, um, um, why did he set it um, in 8th century BC? Why did he go back to this pagan world and take Lear as his subject? <clears throat> Shakespeare knew his history, probably knew it better than, not probably, than any historian writing then, and I would say even today. Um, he, he, he knew history, he loved history, 
He loved philosophy. He was a poet. He wasn't a philosopher, a historian. Why did he set this play um, in, in 8th century BC? What What's the point of that? Why did he do that? So, those are just some of the um, the major themes that some of the background things that I think are important for us to keep in mind when we read this. But let me stop there. I, I want to turn to the question that I asked last week and then um, take up some of the major themes of the play that get us to the end. But I want to take a minute here for any questions or comments or disagreements or anything anybody wants to add right now. Mark, are you, we lost you? Karen, you look, where are you? Where are you? I'm at home. You're at home? Yeah. Oh, is that one of those color backgrounds? Yeah. Okay. I thought you were out in the desert somewhere. <clears throat> I have to travel via Zoom. <laughs> Any, Mark, did you have a question? Sir, I was just telling you, I'll be right back. Uh, okay. Sorry. Yeah. I will. Okay, let me, and Julie, I'm counting on your help here. You and Barbara, you guys cannot, you cannot abandon me on this. What I want to do is take a few minutes with that question that I asked last week. Um, and let me try to just put this simply, but I'm grateful for any, any... Fred, did you have a question or a comment? It was just, you mentioned that some of the critics thought this play, there was no justice in it. To, to me, the justice is everywhere. The question is, do we have justice with or without mercy? And I don't know, maybe we'll get to that at some point, but that's the question, you know, for, for me, if you look at Cordelia and it, especially the, the end and how it ends, there's clearly justice dealt. Question is, is, is there mercy in that justice? So I don't know, maybe we'll, we'll get to it down the road somewhere. <laughs> yes, we will. And I, I'm glad you put it that way. I'm, I'm not sure that I would have put it that way or thought about it, but I'm glad you did because it's a it's a it's a good way to point the question. Wait on it, can you? Because it 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 waits on the end of the play, and I, I, I I'm I'm trying to do everything I can to avoid that until next week. I want to I want to I want to try to do as much justice to what's going on in the middle of the play because I I just think it's so complicated, um, and it could change the way we read the ending. So. But hold on that, because it's a question I have. Um, um, so, any other? By the way, I agree with you. I think there's justice everywhere. I mean, when I read critics saying there's no justice, but flushing out, is that, does that mean, well, I mean, was there any justice in what happened to Boethius? Was there any justice that happened to Thomas More or Christ or Socrates? You know, I mean, that... I'm hoping everybody's following me because in each of those cases, good and virtuous people were killed. 
So, in the so, with respect to worldly justice, was there any justice in those cases? If you look at justice in a larger sense, in the way in which Boethius asks us to look at it, or Plato, or um, Christ at a cross, then how do we look at it? But hold off on that, will you, Fred? Because it, it to me it 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 asks for the whole play, and I you I know you. It's, <laughs> I know that's a huge question, and it, um, but I want to see if we can get the whole play in before we tackle that. So, okay, help me out here, you guys. So here, here are the two settings. Um, <clears throat> Lear begins by dividing the kingdom. You know that he after he does he goes to um, Goneril. And she embarrasses him. She's rude. She asks her servants to treat his retinue rudely. She accuses his men of being unruly. And he's so humiliated by her treatment that he leaves for Reagan. Um, and you know that what happens then, uh, messengers are sent to Reagan. She wants to avoid Lear, so she comes to Gloucester's. And it's there that Kent and... Um, um, Oswald meet and Lear is put into the stock I'm sorry, Kent is put into the stock and Lear comes and finds him there and once again is humiliated because it's his messenger and then Goneril arrives and both she and her sister humiliate their father again um, when Lear turns to Reagan assuming that she will be more compassionate and tender she says, why have 50, um, why not 25 men? And when Lear thinks about it, he thinks that 50 is more than 25, and he turns back to Goneril. And she says, why 10, why any? And Reagan ends by saying, why one? And it's at that point that he has that wonderful speech, reason not the need, in Act 2, Scene 4, or reason not the need, our basis beggars are in the poorest thing, a superfluous, Allow not nature more than nature needs. The frame of reference in this whole play is nature. What he's saying against a modern world is that there is a nature to things. Man has a nature. There's a lawfulness. And if you look at our nature, you don't need nature needs. What he said, um, if, only, if only to go warm were gorgeous, why nature needs not but what thou gorgeous wearest, which scarcely keeps thee warm. Um, man, man needs only what he needs to get along, not the superfluities. So what he asks for when he says, but for true need, you heavens give me that patience, patience I need. So he's discovering that one of the things he needs are not all these trappings um, that men pile up on themselves as if they needed them when they don't. What he needs is patience, and it's at that point he flees and goes to the heath, and um, and there are those powerful scenes um, in Act Three where he says, "Blow winds, crack, strike flat the thick rotundity of the world, crack nature's molds, all germates spilled at once that makes ungrateful man." What he's saying is, there's something in the in the seminal things, those things that create everything else. This is like by the way, this is I think this is where Moby where Ahab Melville got Ahab's 
that malice, that pasteboard mask to strike through because there's some evil, metaphysical evil, in the world. He wants to get at it in order to get back at the whale. Lear is saying that at the very heart of things, what gave creation, crack nature's molds, all germanes spilled at once, those things that are the templates, the seminal causes of all things, there's something wrong with them because it created ungrateful man. How could, how could anything like this be unless it were at the source of creation? <clears throat> so he's beginning what's happened to him, like in all tragic heroes, is taking him to an awareness of things that he didn't have to deal with before. It's making him question the very nature of existence, creation itself, and, and in some ways implicitly the fall. It's at that point where he says, let the great gods that keep this dreadful putter o'er our heads find out their enemies now. Tremble, O wretch, unwhipped of justice, hide thee. All these people who thought they were doing good, they should be exposed. Close pent-up guilts, rive your concealing continence and cry, these dreadful summoners grace. And it goes to your concern, Fred, is there a grace or a mercy? coming out of these people who rule, who, who act in the name of justice. I am a man more sinned against than sinning. Well, we know he's not. Um, so he goes to the heath, and while he's on the heath, he's there with a fool. Kent comes and meets them. Um, they're encouraged to go into this hovel. Lear is reluctant. Um, Gloucester comes, um, trying to find out if Lear is okay. So the Lord's going to the castle. When the, when the storm comes, the, the Lords take cover. They all go inside. When the storm comes, Lear in some sense is um, in, his, in his element. Um, to be without the trappings of nature is appropriate because something's happening to him. He doesn't want to go in the hovel. As a matter of fact, when he gets there, he says um, to the fool and Kent, Prithee, go in thyself, seek thine own ease. This tempest will not give me leave to ponder on things would hurt me more. The tempest distracts him. He does go in the hovel, and it's there that he will perform that mock courtroom scene with his daughters. Um, when they go in the hovel, they'll discover that Tom, Tom um, is there. Um, Tom will bedlam. Um, it's Edgar dressed as a beggar. Um, they'll have the courtroom scene. At, um, Gloucester will come. He will go back to get provisions and return again. Um, let's see. Can anybody help me out? What else happens on the heath that I'm leaving out? The mock trial? <clears throat> the mock trial is, I, I think I mentioned it. Um, while all of this is going on, Edmund has convinced Gloucester that Edgar, Edgar. Oh. is um, planning his death, remember. We get news that Albany and Cornwall are at odds with each other. Um, when, when Edmund lets Cornwall know that Gloucester's gone to help Lear, he and Reagan get violently angry and send out people to get Gloucester. When Gloucester comes back, they blind him. 
and that that and what what happens then is um, Cornwall's servant um, tries to kill him. There's another servant who's going against his master because his master's doing something evil. Um, so he's one of the servants who's acting in the name of a good that's beyond conventional justice. He actually goes, intends to stop his master. Reagan comes in and, and behind his back stabs him. And um, at that moment when Gloucester has his eyes plucked out, he appeals for Edmund. He cries out for Edmund and it's Reagan who says he's the one who um, set you on. And it's at that point that, this is really crucial, Gloucester begins to see. So when we think about the two men, it's important to see that both of them are really in some ways blind. It's only when Gloucester loses his eyes that he begins to see. That's what Reagan tells him. And it, it opens up a whole new way of seeing. Um, it's at that point that he's, um, he is taken back to the heath, to the, where the other men are, and they take him from there, Edgar takes him from there to Dover Beach, to the cliff scene. I want to look at that in a minute. Um, Reagan is without a husband. Um, she, she, and, um, she sends a message to Goneril to have nothing to do with Edmund because she wants Edmund for herself and is, is assuming if Edmund gets it that she intends for Edmund to kill Albany. Wait, wait. Yeah, so that he will, so that she, wait, is that right? That's Gonrel, sorry, who, who sends Edmund um, to, to Reagan um, to, um, to, no, it's, it's Reagan who sends the letter. No. It's the first letter. It's the Um. It's at that point that um, Reagan expresses her. No, it's that's gone. That's Gonro, because she expresses her interest. Yeah, she expresses her interest in Edmund, with the with the understanding that Edmund would kill Albany, so that he could take Albany's place. Reagan's already lost lost Cornwall, um, so both women show their interest in Edmund, and interest Edmund has an interest in both women. He's not sure at the end which way he should go. So all these intrigues are going on. Meanwhile, the French forces have landed, and Albany and um, and Edmund, in place of Cornwall, are gathering the troops together to go to Dover um, to um, to defeat the French king. So everything that's going on in the political world is full of intrigues and machinations and deceptions and betrayals. Um, my question was, what's happening on the heath? How do we describe the community that's forming there? What perspective does that community, what light does that community throw on the whole play? What's the importance of the heath and the storm? What's going on? Maybe it's a little like the storm that we just went through, where 
you know, you're kind of stripped of your expectations and your comforts and, um, you don't even, and you're kind of, ex, you're kind of, um, what's the right word? Taking for granted, whatever the right word is, that tomorrow is going to be there, you know, yeah. so then you, it really like, you know, gets you where it, it boils you down to like your core <laughs> self. Yeah. Anybody else? Can, can we specify what each character takes away from it? Lear. Leave the fool out for a minute because the fool seems to be wise always. I mean, you know, exceptionally wise, whatever the circumstances are. But Lear, Kent, Edgar. Um, can we identify what happens with each person in that community? <clears throat> what happens to the way they relate to Lear? What happens to Lear himself? What happens to Lear as a king? Remember he begins the heath scene when he, when he leaves raging at the thunder and saying break everything apart and then he has that line where he says I'm a man more sinned against than sinning so at the very outset of the Heath scene he he's still in a frame of mind feeling sorry for himself and thinking that he's been wronged um, does any change take place on the Heath he says in that act 3 scene 4 about line 25 or so um, they're freezing, the storm is on, um, Kent takes him to this hovel and when they get there Kent says, good my lord, that's their king. They're saying to the king, you go in. Lear says, pretty, go in thyself, seek thine own ease, this tempest will not give me leave to ponder on things would hurt me more, but I'll go in. In boy, go first to the fool. You houseless poverty, nay, get thee in. I'll pray and then I'll sleep. Poor naked wretches, wheresoe'er you are that hide the pelting of this pitiless storm, how shall your houseless heads and unfed sides, your looped and widowed raggedness, defend you from seasons such as this? Oh, I have taken too little care of this. Take physic, pomp. <clears throat> take medicine, something that will cure you, those of you who are in power. Expose thyself to feel what wretches feel, that thou mayest shake the superflux to them and show the heavens more just. There's that theme of justice. What's happening in him as a king? Fred, did you... Did you... I, I think both Gloucester and Lear... Have, have children that are loyal and children that are disloyal. And they both were, they both erred in, in which were which. And I think in the, in the heath, through the, through the storm and through Gloucester's blindness and, and uh, Lear's madness, they began to realize the error of their ways. And they realized that they chose 
poorly. It, it kind of reminds me, and I know this is going to sound kind of strange, but it it it, it kind of reminds me of the exchange between Morley and Scrooge in the Christmas Carol, where where Morley is trying to convert to convince Scrooge that really his focus is in the wrong place and that what they really should have been cognizant of was was the poor and, and the needy and the rest of, 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 of the civilization and in uh, Lear's speech that he makes during the storm I, I think actually it's when everybody else has gone into the hovel and he's still standing in the storm not wanting to go in and he makes this speech and you know I'm, I'm not the best at translating Shakespeare but what I get out of that speech is he's realized the error that he made and that the focus that he had should have been less on him and his pride and his power and his wealth right. and more on his people Yep. and yep. so to me both both Glaster and and Lear, in that in that moment, kind of realized um, the mistakes that they've made. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, does any Mark? Go ahead. Did you have something? Uh, yeah, just a thought, and I don't know if it's a correct one or not. But to me, I, I looked at the storm. Almost as a that's what was going on in his mind, right? I mean, it's a, it was a rage. It, it, it you know, everybody who's ever been in a bad storm, there's not much you can do, but you know, just hold on for dear life. You really can't do much. And it was almost seemed that's what was happening to his mind. And and I don't know if I can necessarily remember it in the play or put it to the verse. But Fred's right. You know, he's realizing their error in his ways, and it's almost as if it's you know everything he knew isn't everything he knew. You did you know it was wrong, right? And now he's realizing that, so his whole world is just getting shredded, kind of like being in the storm, right? Out in a storm, you know, not under cover, right? You just get beat to death with it, and that's right. Kind of the that's how I took the storm portion of it. And yeah. I don't know if that's correct or not, but that's kind of how I've No, 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 I think it is. I think it's right on. I would I just encourage or offer this thought too, just to um, to keep in mind. I think I mentioned the the ending of the Iliad. Remember when the gods entered the battle, a whole spiritual order comes in, that moment of conversion. I think the um, I mean I think what you said is absolutely right on. Um, but I don't think it's we're meant to just confine it to Lear's mind. I think the storm has a reality in itself so that, and I thought your description, Mark, when you said everything, everything is, you know, every, everything else takes that form for you in that moment, that, that it's like the psychomachia with the gods in the Iliad, that a whole spiritual reordering is taking place that changes the way he stands in the world itself. It's chaotic. It's not so. It's not. We're gonna we're gonna get to this in a minute. Um, it's not confined to Lear's mind. Um, everything in the world, outside of his mind, is taking on a different character. Um, the world is changing. It's um, it's it's confusing, perplexing, troubling, violent, all of it. 
What about the other characters and the way they look at Lear? Kent, Edgar, when he comes in, Gloucester doesn't come, come I mean, Gloucester comes and returns. Remember when Gloucester comes, he, he comes with a torch in Edgar's first comment. This is the foul um, fibber to give it. He begins at curfew and walks till the first cock. Remember, Edgar's taking the position of an insane beggar chased by the fiends. So he's turning everything around him into fiends as if something outside of him is pursuing him. So, well, which is appropriate for him because he's not safe anything anywhere in the world. If anybody sees him, they're going to kill him or take him in. So he keeps presenting the world as if it's in terms of fiends and demons. His father comes with a light and they welcome him. So for um, a time, and I, I don't know that we're going to get time of this, but just so I can pause at it for a minute. In Act 2, Scene 2, that closes with Kent, um, remember, he's just been put in the stock at this point, and he says, Act 2, Scene 2, about line 160, To the warm sun approach thou beacon to this under globe, that by thy comfortable beams I may pursue this letter, Nothing almost sees miracles but misery. It's only when you're most miserable that when you lose everything that you can have any sense of anything miraculous. I notice from Cordelia, who has most fortunately been informed of my obscured course, and shall find time from this enormous state, seeking to give losses their remedies. All weary and overwatched take vantage, heavy eyes, not to behold this shameful lodging. Fortune, good night. Smile once more, turn thy will. That's directly from Boethius. Will He's in the will. stocks. Huh? Will or wheel? Wheel. That's directly from Boethius. The wheel of fortune constantly turning. You're in the top one moment and the bottom. Well, look at this when Gloucester comes. On Act 3, Scene 6. Oh, wait, sorry. Yeah. Wait, where was, sorry, where was I? When... Um, at the hovel, um, Gloucester has just had his eyes taken out at, or, yeah, at his palace, his castle, and he's being guided by an old man, and he's brought to the hovel on Act 4, Scene 1. Edgar's there, remember, and he says, Yet better thus and known to be condemned than still condemned and flattered. It's better to be out in, it's better to be worse conditions when you know the way things are going than to be condemned and being flattered. To be worse the lowest and most dejected thing of fortune stands still in esperance, in hope. It's better to know where you are in truth um, than to be deceived, lives not in fear. The lamentable change is from the best, the worst returns to laughter. The worst thing that could happen is when we have things our way and suddenly we lose them. The worst returns to laughter. When things go bad, at some point they're going to get better. The question is, can we hold on? It's exactly one of the lessons Lady Philosophy is teaching Boethius. Welcome then, thou unsubstantial air that I embrace. The wretch that thou hast blown into the worst owes nothing to thy blasts. 
things are going to change. That's strictly stoical. That's straight out of Boethius. Now Gloucester comes, the old man is presenting him, he's blinded, Act 4, Scene 1. Gloucester, away, get thee away, good friend, be gone, thy comforts can do me no good at all. Thee they may hurt. He's reached a point where he realizes all the comforts that he had in home only spoiled him. For anybody to try to take him back to that world is going to make him worse, because he knows he can't count on it. Good friend, be gone. Thy comforts can do me no good at all. Thee they may, thee they may hurt. Old man, you cannot see your way. Gloucester, I have no way, and therefore want no eyes. I stumbled when I saw, full oft to seen, our means secure us, and our mere defects prove our commodities. O oh, dear son Edgar, the food of thy abused father, wrath, may I but live to see thee in my touch. I'd say I had eyes again. He doesn't know it, but the man in front of him, his son, whom he thought betrayed him. How now who's there? Edgar, O oh, gods, who is it can say, I am the worst. I am worse than e'er I was. He just talked about being worse, and now what's in front of him is his father. And he knows that whatever was in his mind before, it doesn't come close to what he's feeling right now, seeing his father as he is. So Edgar's beginning to see, and this is, this is one of the lines that critics use to put this play down in the Iliad. Gloucester says, line 31, he has some reason, else he could not beg, as in the last night's storm I such a fellow saw, which made me think a man a worm. My son came then into my mind, yet my mind was scarce friends with him. I've heard more since, as flies to wanton boys are we to the gods. They kill us for their sport. Edgar, how should this be? Bad is the trade that must play fool to sorrow, angling itself and others. Bless thee, master. He'll feel sorry for him, and you know it's going to happen. He's going to take Gloucester to the cliffs, but I want to take a minute just to try to finish out this hovel scene. How do Edgar and do, do Edgar and Kent change it all from their experience of the hovel? Does anything happen to them? Is it just Lear and Gloucester who change? Do, do Edgar and Kent not change themselves? Genie. Come on. Is it only the, the two men in power who change? The others don't? What do you say, Doc? Well, Edgar clearly feels... Can you hear, Suzanne? Go ahead, Doc. Edgar clearly feels earlier on that he's been mistreated. He doesn't know why his father thinks he's trying to kill him. He doesn't know that Edmund has done it. Um, and he clearly feels like his life's in danger and he doesn't know why, but it's not what he would have expected. Um, what do you mean it's not what he would have expected? Because he, he, 
He never threatened his father. He doesn't know what. Oh, right, he, yeah. right. Um, but when he gets to the hovel and he sees Lear, he looks at Lear and thinks, my, my sorrows, my pain is, is nothing compared to what the king is feeling. Yeah. Um, and I think he has the same feeling about Gloucester, that um, he has a little less patience with Gloucester, but he clearly feels like his problems are nothing compared to Gloucester and Lear's. Right. So he gets a different perspective. Let me, let me, let me is, did everybody hear Suzanne? Let me, let me put, I don't know how to put this. I, I mean, I, I can only put this in the form of a assertion, I guess, and you guys would like to hear your response. Um, what seems to be being said here is that each of these men grieve because they've lost almost everything they knew in the social political world. Um, is it is it possible to know the depths of the grief that we're capable of without relating to another human being? How important is it for us or a human to experience the grief of another person? Is, is it possible for any of us to come to the understanding, I guess, maybe that we're capable of without an experience in, in, it, in another? I mean, it, it, to me, it's a sort of obvious question, but I don't want to. I don't want to overlook it. Was that how important is another human being in our experience of suffering? Can we ever really measure suffering without being related to another? Um, you know, each of the men, Edgar, Kent, have grievances. They both suffer. It seems to me that what happens in the hovel is that experiencing suffering in another, particularly in a king, because a king has a longer fall, um, it, it increases their capacity for empathy, for um, somehow getting beyond themselves so that their sense of suffering gets deeper, it's enlarged. Sue, go ahead, sorry, go ahead. Your audio's not on? Okay, I think I've got it all on now. Um, all I was going to say was, I, I think it was Tracy who was talking earlier about the storm. And, and I look back to that because I think for many of us, we may have had a problem or more than one problem. But we look around and see others who have had so much more to deal with. And that helps put in perspective how large or how small our, what we had to put up with is. And, and I, I feel like that's what's happening. Now, I'm a little conflicted because I feel like to those who have great power and success at some point, that also puts more responsibility on them to perform and to think through things and Lear clearly didn't and Gloucester fell into the trap pretty easily 
And so I would hope they would reflect. I'm not sure. I mean, but they had farther to fall. There's no question. So when Kent and Edgar look at them, they can feel sorry for themselves, but they can also look at another and say, okay, I need to keep in perspective that what I gave was not, or had, or lost, or whatever you want to say, was not as great as that. Okay. And I think when we do that with Christ, we have to all say <laughs> what we gave up was nothing like what God gave up. Right. So quit whining. In a, I mean, wow. I don't mean that, that's wow. stupidly, but no, no, no. I don't. No, no. I don't think you did at all. I, God, I mean, that was a wonderful. Yeah. Here. Well. Wow. 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 No. 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 It was right on, Sue. L let me add a. Let me offer a perspective here, just to add to what Sue's saying or to what all of you are saying in this. Aristotle's definition of tragedy is this, um, that in tragedy the action goes from prosperity to loss and comedy from some loss to prosperity. And in tragedy, um, the, the tragic hero is nobler than life. In comedy, he's lower than life, more like us. So that one of the effects of tragedy is that we're more likely to feel the amplitude of a fall, the depth of it, it's what you're saying, Sue, because it's a great man, it's a noble man. So go back to our reading. Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas. Um, I mean, we can go on and on. We've got a king here. Um, what, so, and, so one of the reasons Shakespeare deals with kings in his tragedy, or great men, is because of their nobility. When that nobility goes, we feel the loss with a greater amplitude. There's more to be lost, more to be felt. The language does it so much here too for Lear. So in good tragedy, it's harder to write tragedy in democracy. I think it's one of the reasons we don't have it. Death of a salesman, which is supposed to be celebrated as an American classic, to me is laughable. It, it encourages self-pity and ends in pity. Tragedy, Aristotle says tragedy can't end there because pity's an arresting emotion. You, we know this from our experiences here and um remember tragedy and fear are the two sue pity and fear pity and fear are those gestures to me oh okay um so Shakespeare's dealing with a king and he's a noble king he has all the nobility of a king so when those who love him watch what's happening to him their depth of sorrow is going to be greater because they're seeing a greater fall. This was a great man. Now, add to that Sue's perspective. God, it, it's just sort of stunning. Remember from the Divine Comedy in the Paradiso, it said, if you looked at the, if you looked at the nature assumed, nobody was more unjust. Christ took on our nature. It was unjust. It had to go to a cross to atone for a sin. So justice is at the center of what he did. If you look at the person who assumed that nature, nobody was treated more unjustly. Christ was executed when he shouldn't have been. He was innocent. He's called king. <laughs> so take what I was saying about the tragic hero, about King Lear or any of the kings in Shakespeare's plays, and apply it to Christ. He did nothing that was um, sinful. He took on our sinful nature, had it crucified so our, we could be redeemed. 
so anyway, it seems to me that one of the things that's happening in this community that's forming is not only is, are the leaders, um, Lear and Gloucester, learning to see themselves and feel, not just think, in their heads. They're learning to actually feel what others suffer. And it's changed the way they are. At the same time, their servants are learning to feel more deeply the loss of a king. Um, everybody in the hovel is taking a knowledge to the heart. It's changing their hearts. There's a depth, a capacity to feel for others greater than they had when they entered it. At the same time, it's really important to be aware in the outside world, at Albany's Palace, at Gloucester's place, that all these machinations are going on. Um, um, Goneril's plotting the death of her husband. Um, she wants Edmund in her bed. Reagan wants Edmund in her bed. Um, Edmund is, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Manipulating people, it's not the word, but playing with people all around him to get what he wants. Ultimately, he wants to, um, his father to be dead, his brother to be dead, so he can take over the inheritance. If he marries either one of those sisters, he's going to gain one of those titles as well. So in the world outside the world outside the hovel, we see men and women whose only concern is benefiting themselves. There's no nature. None. Let me just give a line to make it clear because it's stunning. When Cornwall, and we, we, we see the same sentiment repeated in the women. In fact, Almighty is going to call Gonroll a, um, a devil. On, in Act 3, Scene 7, when Cornwall has just learned that Gloucester has gone to Lear to support him, and he sent out people to bring him back, and, and Gloucester comes back for provisions, Cornwall says, Edmund, farewell. Edmund is just informed on his father. Go seek the traitor Gloucester, pinion him like a thief, bring him before us. Edmund and the servants leave, and then Cornwall finishes. Though well we may not pass upon his life without the form of justice, let me read it again. Though well we may not pass upon his life without the form of justice, yet our power shall do a, court, a courtesy to our wrath, which men may blame but not control. He's in power. This is, this is Plato. He's got the power. He will make be what he wants. So he's not, he's not going to give Gloucester a trial. He's going to execute him and do whatever he has to do to justify it when people call him to account. Reagan and, Reagan and Goneril do the same thing. Both of them depend on their power to get what they want. So one of the, def one of the defining powers that are contrasted in the two scenes is that in the Heath scene, the individuals have reached a point where they've lost power. They have no power. They're beggars. They're helpless. They're the poor, the needy. And in the outside world, in the political world, things are determined in terms of power and whatever men can do with their minds to rationalize it. So both of those settings are set off in contrast to each other. And let me, let me um, quickly... Um, Lear puts on the mock trial. I, I wish we had more time to go into it, but um, 
here's Edgar, by the way, picking up the same theme. Um, um, I, I, we've got to go to the, the um, Dover Beach scene. This is Edgar, um, who's, who's, um, who's seen his father, um, When we are better see burying our woes, we scarcely think our miseries are foes. And notice that this is in poetry. It's Shakespeare slipping into poetry. When we are better, when we are better see burying our woes, we scarcely think our miseries are foes. All of the servants are seeing the king bear everybody's problems because that's his problem. The problem was that he never bore them before as a king. Who alone suffers, suffers most in the mind. Leaving free things and happy shows behind. But then the mind much sufferance doth or skip when grief hath mates. And bearing fellowship, how light and portable my pain seems now when that which makes me bend makes the king bow. He's saying exactly what we've been saying. So long as they were in his mind, they were still pains. But now that he... He experiences them in others. There's a fellowship of suffering. They become one with others. So two entirely different communities. One's breaking down and dividing. The other is coming together in a kind of love um, and compassion. Tom away, mark the high noises, thyself beware, beray. When false opinions, whose wrong thoughts defile thee, in thy just proof repeals and reconciles thee, what will hap more tonight? Safe scathe the king. He's hoping the king will be okay. Now, two two quick things before we go. We've got to do this. You remember that um, um, they reach a point where they say, "Carry Lear away to." to uh, Dover. They've got to get Lear to, to safety in Dover because they know that the, um, that the sisters are pursuing him. And, um, and Edgar takes Gloucester to Dover Cliffs because Gloucester wanted him to take him there. Now, you remember, when, and this is Act 4, Scene 6, um, Gloucester is going to the cliffs with the intention of throwing himself over and killing him, taking his life. Okay, This is Act 4, Scene 6, about line 30 or so. Why I do trifle thus with his despair is done to cure it. Gloucester, O you mighty gods, the world I do renounce and in your sight shake patiently my great afflictions off. If I could bear it longer and not fall to quarrel with your great opposeless wills, my stuff and loathed part of nature should burn itself out. If Edgar live, oh bless him, now fellow fare thee well. What's his attitude towards the god or destiny or whatever we want to call it here? Or his own predicament? If I could bear it longer and not fall to quarrel with your great opposeless wills, my stuff and loathed part of nature should burn itself out. What would Lady Philosophy be saying to him at this point? Quit whining. Yeah, right. <laughs> yes. Come, sir, farewell, and yet I know not how 
Conceit may rob the treasure of life when life itself yields to the thief. Had he been where he thought um, by this had been um, had thought been passed, alive or dead, ho you, sir, friend, hear you speak. Thus might be passed indeed, yet he revives. What are you, sir? He's brought Gloucester to the cliff, told him to jump, left him alone. Gloucester thinks he jumps, it's it's a two feet jump, and he survives. And he and it's and it's as if um, he's cheated death. Um, and Edgar pretends he's this other guy and says, what are you doing here? Um, Gloucester, away, let me die. And Ed, Edgar responds as he does, and then Gloucester says, but I have a fallen or not. From the dread summits this chalky born, look up a height. The shrill gorged lark so far cannot be seen or heard. Do but look up. It's like the birds are so far you can't see them. Edgar, as I stood here below me, thought his eyes, this creature that was next to him, that is, he himself, were two full moons. He had a thousand noses, horns whelked and waved like the enrigid sea. It was some fiend, therefore thou happy father, think that the clearest gods who make them honors of men's impossibilities have preserved thee. Gloucester, I do remember now. This is like... Um, um, Boethius, two-thirds of the way when Lady Philosophy has been giving him this medicine and toughening him up. I do remember now, henceforth I'll bear affliction till it do cry out itself, enough, enough, and die. That thing you spoke of, I took it for a man, often t'would say, the fiend, the fiend, he led me to that place. It's at this point that Lear and Gloucester are going to meet. I mean, yeah, but I want to I take a minute with this. Edgar takes his father to the cliff, lets him jump, he pretends to be helping him. It's a two-foot fall. He comes and pretends to be another man, and he said, when I looked up, I saw this fiend, this strange creature with you. And Gloucester's response, if I, if I suffer affliction again, I will bear it. We're going to actually see him weaken a little bit at the very end of the play, but here he says, um, if he meets it, he'll cry out, enough, enough, or it will cry out. Um, why does Edgar do what he does? In fact, let me let me pick up Karen's um, response. Why doesn't he just say, stop whining? Why does Edgar do what he does? And I'm saying this because I'm assuming everybody sees that it works. He brings his father to a point of saying, henceforth I'll bear affliction till the do cry out itself, enough, enough. No matter how bad it is, he will face it out. Why didn't Esker, Edgar say to his father, uh, get real, stop whining, tough it out. Why does he do what he does? And he's on the point of suicide. He's on the point of taking his life. Is there a wisdom in what he does? What does he do? How do we describe it? It seems to me that this is a kind of therapy. What's he doing? Describe it. You know, Father, I talked with Father Flint once when he when um, we were talking and he said very often when he goes to give laughs rights, he ends up in a hospital with um, people, doctors working on patients, sometimes kids. And one of the things that the doctors asks of the parents is that they it's like they they're being asked to put on a role because if they get too emotionally involved at the danger the kids are facing, it's not going to help their kids. So that a, a degree of impersonality, 
is they're, they're being encouraged to carry to whatever they do with these people. It could be somebody with Alzheimer's or a child. That it's important for to put on something impersonal because if you get drawn in emotionally, you can make things worse. What is Kent or sorry Edgar doing? Can we describe it? Why is it important? My only thought was that nothing he re he realized nothing he would have said would have made a difference. He's going to have to go through it. He, you mean Gloucester has to go through it? Yeah. I mean, he could have said, you know, tough it up or you know, whatever, but it, it wouldn't have worked. Why, then, Mark? Why? I think you're right, but can you, I mean, why? I mean, I, to me, it's like you got to hit rock bottom. And at this point, literally, Throw himself off cliff, but uh, that was good. That was good. Um, and and I, I, I couldn't gather from the language as to why exactly. I can't. Um, I didn't. I couldn't perceive that. Um, it just, but that's just the way it seemed to me is that he had to let him do it because that's the only way he might learn. He might or he might not, but he knew that by saying something, it wasn't going to work anyway. So, Carl, did you have something? I was thinking that um, if he could get his father to believe that the father had the solution or came up with the answer, he would be more inclined to follow it, to believe it, than if he was told what the answer was. And I don't know what you call that in psychology, but I think it's, you know, if you can solve the problem, then you're right. <laughs> You'll feel better about it, too. Yeah, it's interesting because it's not so much a problem in the mind as an experience. You know, he had he had to actually go through that that action, um, and it's interesting that that when Kent describes it, he describes himself as the helper next to his dad up at the top of the cliff, uh, yeah, Edgar. or Edgar. He said, "As I stood here below." Um, he thought his eyes were two full moons. He had a thousand noses, horns welked out and waved like the enrigid sea. It was some fiend. Therefore, thou happy father, thinkest the th think that the clearest gods who made them honors of men's impossibilities have preserved thee. What you just escaped was something devilish or damnable, and the gods were watching out for you. So... The conclusion at the end of this play that he puts his father through is um, understand that some demon was working on you before. What's happened now is you've been saved by the God. Why is that important? Why does he say that? I do remember now, henceforth I'll bear affliction till it do cry out. That thing you speak of, I took it for a man, often t'would say, the fiend, the fiend. Remember, because Tom O'Bedlin, I mean, back in the Heath, or, or kept saying that, but he's saying this here of, um, of Tom above. He led me to that place. Anybody? Fred, did you have a thought on this? 
get you out of that comfortable couch. I I just think that that Edgar realizes, and, and, and Mark's already said it, really, that you know it's one thing to be. It's kind of like the experience, I guess, you go through. Not that I've been there, but having having described to me going through like AA or something. You know, you you've got. It's it's one thing to be told something, but it, you have to kind of go through that physical experience as well as the the mental exercise that ultimately gets you to the point where you you reestablish a faith of some sort. And you're and you're ready for that next step, the, the beginning of the reparation. Yeah. And without that, you can't really ever make the turn, if you will. And and for me, it was just as Mark said, it was Edgar realizing that if his father was ever really going to get better, he he had to he had to get that reestablishment of some sort of faith it's kind of like what lady philosophy was doing with boethius you have to you have to somehow get that balance of of the the, the mental and and the and, and the physical experience to ultimately make that turn and and that realization that you know you can you understand what the problem was, and you can begin to you can begin to get to get better. Yeah. Let me let me see if I can just for a second um, take what you guys have been saying um, and reframe it to get to the next scene. Um, so it's not just about understanding something or thinking. Understanding or thinking isn't enough. You can say, do this. Um, um, stop whining. You know, you, um, you, you got to stop acting like this. It isn't good for you. It isn't good for you. Do this and it'll be good for you. That, that isn't what's going on here. He, he, Edgar takes his father through this scene. Um, there's a combination of a real gentleness, as I see it. I mean, he's so respectful of him. He feels deeply what's going on. And yet he puts on something impersonal so that he ha so that he's capable of distancing himself and being tough, I guess, if for want of another word. But after this scene, when Gloucester says he will not let affliction overwhelm him ever again, um, Lear arrives. He's on his way to, um, to Dover, and so is Kent and Gloucester, and they happen to meet on, in Act 5, Scene 6. The, the see, they see each other. Gloucester says, the trick of that voice I do well remember. Is it not the king? Lear, I every inch a king, when I do stare, see how the subject quakes. Now, my question will be here, where are the two men? What do they see when they look on each other? And how do we understand them at this point in the change that they're undergoing? How important has suffering been? How are they changed? And how are we to look at reason when the line that, Gal that Edgar speaks is reason in madness? That both of them are mad, genuinely mad. By the world's terms, these men are mad. 
And Edgar will say, reason in madness. How are we to understand the madness, the, the way they use their minds now, in contrast to whatever they did with their minds before? So here's Lear. When I do stare, see how the subject quakes. I pardon that man's life. What was thy cause? Adultery? Thou shalt not die. Die for adultery? No. The wren goes to it. The small gilded fly does lecher in my sight. Everything in nature is lecherous. Let copulation thrive, for Gloucester's bastard son was kinder to his father than my daughter's. Got between the lawful sheets. He doesn't know what we know. That as a matter of fact, that's not true. That Edmund is vicious, just like his daughter's. To it, luxury, pell-mell, for lack soldiers. Behold yon simpering dame, whose face between her forks presages snow, presages snow, that minces virtue, and does shake the head to hear of pleasure's name. The fitches, nor the soiled horse, goes to it with a more riotous appetite. Down from the waist they are centaurs, centaurs. Though women all above, but to the girdle do the gods inherit, beneath it is all the fiends. There's hell, there's darkness, there's the sulfurous pit, burning, scalding stench, consumption, fie, 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 pa, pa. Give me an ounce of civet, good apothecary, sweet in my imagination. There's money for these. It's so darkened. Um, he knows it. Gloucester, oh, oh, let me kiss that hand. Lear, let me wipe it first. It smells of mortality. Gloucester, oh, ruined piece of nature. This great world shall show where out are to not. Dost thou know me? I remember thine eyes well enough. Dost thou squint, squinny at me? No, do thy worst, blind Cupid, I'll not love. Read thou this challenge, Mark, but the penning of it. He sees that it's Gloucester, recognize him. So both men see. Gloucester has begun to see, even though he's blind. Um, Lear says, oh ho, are you there with me? No eyes in your head, no no money in your purse. Your eyes are in a heavy case, your purse in a light. Yet you see how this world goes. He knows that Gloucester sees better now without his eyes and without a purse with no money than he ever saw before. What is it about money and success that gets in the way of men seeing? So many of the passages in Scripture show man, Christ healing men's sight and bringing a faith to the world without which men didn't see very well at all. Gloucester's response about the world, his comment on the world, I see it feelingly. Lear, what, art mad? A man may see how this world goes with no eyes. Look with thine ears, see how yon justice rails upon young simple thief. Hearken thy ear, change places and handy dandy. Which is the justice, which is the thief? The judge is worse than the guy he's condemning. Thou hast seen a farmer's dog bark at a beggar? Aye, sir. And the creature run from the cur. There thou mightest behold the great image of authority, a dog's obeyed in office. Thou rascal beetle, hold thy bloody hand. Why dost thou la la lash that whore? Strip thine own back. Stripe thine own back, thou hotly lust to use her in that kind, for which thou whippest her. The user hangs the cosner. It's those, it's those in the seat of justice who are actually performing injustices by what they're doing, 
I mean, this goes so back to Plato's thing about people in power. Um, are, are those people who are justices, have they really done what they should have to order their own souls so that the justice they bring is real? Or should they be whipping their own backs instead of those of others? For which thou whippest her, the user hangs the cozener. Through tattered clothes small, vices do appear, robes and furred gowns hide all. Plate sin with gold, and the strong lance of justice hurtless breaks. Arm it in rags, a pygmy straw does pierce it. None does offend, none, I say none, I'll able him. Take that of me, my friend, who have the power to seal the accuser's lips. Get, get thee glass eyes, and like a scurvy politician, seem to see the things thou dost not. Now, 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 pull off my boots, harder, harder so. Edgar O. Matter and impertinency mixed, reason in madness. Lear's going to run off right now, and you know that what will happen is that he will end up at... Um, at Dover Beach, Edgar brings um, his father to um, Dover's Beach, and here um, the battle will engage between the English and the French. But for a moment, um, what do we make of this line spoken by Edgar? Oh, matter and impertinency mixed, reason in madness. Lear and Gloucester are both mad to the, world, to the eyes of the world. Um, how do we understand their madness? I, I, I think I gave you this example in my notes. I, um, I meant to mention it. I don't think I did it at the beginning. In Plato's book, The Phaedrus, Socrates makes the case. It's all about love. This young Phaedrus has been overwhelmed by the speech of the man, and the man's making the argument that the one person you should not fall in love with is the lover because the lover's mad. What we learn is that it's this man playing to a boy to get him to love him, but without taking any responsibility for it, so he can just have the boy the way he wants. Socrates turns that around and says, no, love, love, is, love is mad, but um, love as a madness can be good. And he identified four forms of madness that are good. Apollo, divine madness, Dionysus, which is a ritual enactment of, of a divine inspiration, the muses, the inspiration of poetry, and Aphrodite. So every one of those loves has a divine source, and they're all looked at as forms of madness. At the heart of them, hidden is a reason, a power of reason that the world doesn't know. So here we have... Shakespeare's brought us to a point where the two men meet and they're both mad. According to the world, Lear is mad, and that'll be clear again in a moment when he and Cordelia meet. It's a touching scene. It's what we'll look at next week. But my question here is, in the Heath, Lear and Gloucester were stripped of everything. So was Kent, so was Edgar, so was the Fool. They were stripped of everything, and here we see even their powers of reason seem to have gone. But my question is, is there, is there something to madness, as Shakespeare shows it here, that the world doesn't see that's important for us to see in you know, understanding the action of this play? How do we understand their madness?
What is madness here? There's that one passage in Act 3, Scene 4 that we didn't look at when, when Lear goes into the hovel and he meets Lee Edgar, and Edgar says he curled his hair, he was one of the world, he slept with women, he did all this, he was a Turk, he was a fox. He committed all these sins. This is Edgar, as poor Tom, identifying himself, and he says, this is who I am, this is what, so he's, he's unmasking himself, he says, this is, these are all the things I did. Lear says, Thou wert better in a grave than to answer with thy uncovered body this extremity of the skies. Is man no more than this? Consider him well. Thou owest the worm no silk, the beast no hide, the sheep no wool, the cat nor perfume. Ha! Here's three honest are sophisticated. The worm, the beast, the sheep, because they have something to protect themselves in nature. Here's three on us are sophisticated. Thou art the thing itself. An accommodated man is no more but such a poor bare forked animal as thou art. Off you lendings, come unbutton me. Even though it's in the storm and it's freezing, he wants to get rid of his... That is all trappings of exterior stuff. It, you are the thing itself. An accommodated man is no more than such a poor bare forked... In other words, we need wool from the sheep. We need other things from other things because man by himself lacks something that the animals have. They're sophisticated in that sense. Now, what are we to make of this madness? Because this is the last thing to go on the way to Dover. That both men are mad. They're looking at each other. And then Edgar says, Oh, matter in impertency mixed, reason in madness. How do we understand? What have they come to in the use of their minds? Are they mad? Or do they see something now that's essential to get them where they're going that they could not have seen before? Wow. Sue, go ahead. Well, to me at this point, it's the realization that it's the world that's mad, or the, the trappings of the world. And they're beginning to come to value those things that should have been valued in the world and so they're really coming out of madness wow but yeah they quite quite get it yet yeah no i think again i mean i just think you're right on if your whole i mean just if think about who, who is man i mean who what are we you know particularly in the animal kingdom the sheep has wool these other animals have whatever they need to you know to take care of themselves without a house or the freeze God. 
I think we all would have died if we didn't have, I mean, I'm speaking for us, Suzanne and I, you know that we took off for our sons. We, have, we tried being brave for one night and then took off, but if your whole orientation, man, so who is man? All these other creatures are sophisticated because they have within themselves the, the means of being taken care of in nature or, or existing in nature. Leave man alone in nature, he's but a poor forked animal. I mean, unaccommodated man is more, no more than this. If your whole orientation is the world, and Fred named him last week, um, Boethius's power, um, wealth, comfort, pleasure, fame. You know, if, if, if those have been your reference points all your life, if those are the things through which you see everything, that's your orientation, and suddenly you're stripped of that, how would you not be mad? Except I think um, it, it's important to see it in, in the way that Sue just presented it. What you see is the world is mad. If you look at the world outside of the hovel, Albany, Cornwall, Reagan, Edmund, Goneril, if you watch all the politics, the king of France coming and then having to return and leave Cordelia because he had problems at home. Cordelia is going to be defeated. She and Lear are going to be taken. So at th actually at this point when Lear thinks he's faced the worst, he doesn't even know yet what's coming up next. So on this wheel of fortune, I mean go back to, to um, Edgar's words or Kent's words, just when you think the worst is over, just when we think Lear is, you know, at his lowest, and we discover there's something even worse. So, I think one of the things that, sh that Shakespeare's showing us here is, is that it, it's impossible if you've been stripped of everything, not to feel yourself going mad, and yet that moment is like a Socratic revelation. Remember the two words of the Socratic enterprise, elentus um, apori. Elentus is the questioning, the confusion that gets you to a point, and that apori that apor is that moment of revelation that comes when you realize you're in the cave, you thought you saw everything, and then you realize you didn't, and your whole way of looking at the world collapses. And it's only at that point that you can really begin to discover who you are when everything's gone. And at this point, I don't want to make, I don't want to lose the, the opportunity. Um, in what way then is like the heath, is the heath like the cross? Where it's the beginning of everything going, completely everything. And it won't be until everything's gone um, that here in this play, Lear can discover who he really is. And, and what we discover at that moment, I mean, what are we going to learn at the end when, um, when Lear and Cordelia are taken captive and Edmund's going to be unmasked, Edmund and, and Edgar are going to fight finally, the two sisters are going to die, all the machinations are going to be answered, a justice will be served. I mean, to go to Fred's question, um, is there a mercy offered in that or not? Is this nihilistic? How, how do we look at the ending? But right here, both men reach what seems to be their lowest. They both seem mad. And yet, from Edward's, or Edgar's response, 
there seems to be some reason in this madness that I, I thought Sue put it beautifully that what you realize is that the rest of the world is going mad. I mean, that's what we see. It's just on its success and accomplishments and power and comfort and fame and um, so anyway, here's where we are next week. What I'd like to do is um, finish Lear. I'd like to look at the last scene. It's I think it's one of the most touching scenes, and it's I, it it's full of questions. It's it. Everything's going to unravel. This is the denouement. Edmund's going to be unmasked. He and his brother are going to duel. Um, the the outcome of the battle is um, occurs then between England and France. Um, French is the French are defeated and Cordilla is cap captured. So everything moves towards a resolution. How are we to understand this resolution? Is there a wisdom? To Lear, or is the play nihilistic? What do we What do we take away? I don't think we'll start Pericles next week, um, but bring it any or have it ready, or until we can start it. Um, if we don't start it next week, we'll start it the week before. My My suggestion is that you guys get the what's the edition? Is it the Folger? What is that, Doc? This one. Yeah. It's Folger. Folger. My suggestion to you guys, if you haven't got the, the Folger edition, is 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 probably the cheapest edition, and I'm always amazed at how how readable it is. It has on the facing page notes that are very simple and a little summary of each scene. So when you go into a scene, you get you know what it's about, and you've got brief notes so you can go through it. Pericles is not a hard play, not after not after Lear, and I I I believe it's it's. It's one of the two most beautiful plays that Shakespeare wrote. The other one is Winter's Tale because it's sacramental. It's dealing with a mystical experience. There's nothing like it in literature. <clears throat> the closest we get to it is in Dante's Paradiso. What happens in the in Pericles is uh, is an amazing thing. Um, so we'll plan to finish Lear. If, if we get through in time, we'll start Pericles. I, I sort of doubt that we will, but you might get... We might get a copy and start reading. But the two the two biggest questions for me next week will be, is this a Christian play or not? Are there Christian influences? Where are they? What do we make of them? And the other is, again, why did Shakespeare go back to 8th century BC? Why did he go back to this ancient, pagan, pre-Christian time and bring into it some of these Christian elements? Um, we'll identify them next week and talk about them, but that will be our that will be our work next week. Any questions or comments about any of this that we've covered tonight? Fred, did you know? He's waiting for the end. Hmm? He's waiting for the end. See you guys in a week. Have a good week. All of you guys, be safe. Bright. Sorry? Sue is really bright. Oh, yeah. Why do you say it, Doc? Oh, she just, her comments are, she really misses. She really what? Rarely. Rarely misses, misses. yeah. No, I agree. Yeah.
Um, yeah, did do you want to say anything about that or? No. No. <clears throat> no, I mean it was. It, I mean it was put just the way. It, the I mean, if it had come from me, it would have been one thing. But coming from them, when it comes, and it's, it always has a greater. And that's the point. I mean, the rest of the world is mad. It's the question asked next week is, if the rest of the world is mad, and Lear and Gloucester and all the others are saying, what do you do with that sanity in a world like this? <coughs> Oops.